0: Welcome to DLSN, a podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods. DLSN promotes the advancement of women in private equity and finance through conversations with women in the private equity and finance space. These conversations provide both insights and practical takeaways to inform your deal work and enhance the culture of your organization. If you're ready to drive the industry toward a more inclusive and diverse environment, then it's time to come to the table.
1: Welcome, everyone, to Deal Us In, a women in private equity and finance podcast brought to you by McGuire Woods. Today, we're welcoming back Jody Lawson and Susan Rodriguez, partners at McGuire Woods. This is our third annual episode together. In 2021, we did an episode called Skeletons in the Closet. In 2020, we talked about horror stories and keeping monsters out of your deals, And today we went with a less grim, but equally festive theme, deal resolutions for the new year. Jody and Susan, would you please remind our listeners a little bit about yourselves?
2: Yeah, thanks so much for having us, Kelsey. Uh, I'm Jody Lawson. I am a litigation partner in the Charlotte office of McGuire Woods, and I focus on business litigation, energy litigation, and financial services litigation.
3: And hi, it's Susan Rodriguez. I'm also a partner in our Charlotte, North Carolina office. I work mostly on investigations and regulatory issues that come up in deals and then helping companies respond to investigations by the government. And
1: so we'll talk a little bit about how that comes up in deals today. And Susan, I think you're going to kick us off talking about some deal resolutions related to I-9s with an outlook towards the new year. What have you seen in the past year? Well, Kelsey, you know,
3: you and I have worked on a lot of deals together this year, and we've uh, seen a mix of of different things. I've talked about this on some of the podcasts, but I always think it's good to sort of set the table. You know, I talk to a lot of private equity people, and and they always ask, Susan, you know, tell me about I-9s. This seems to be an issue that's more and more front and center in deals, whereas, you know, a few years ago, nobody even really asked questions and diligence about I-9s. And so why is it becoming such a big issue? And I think the answer is there's a few people, you know, RWI deals, nearly everyone asks on an RWI call now about I-9s. Have you looked at I-9s and diligence? What do they look like? Oftentimes, if there's issues, those form I-9s, you know, coverage will be excluded. And so I I think there's a real trend of seeing that more and more. And so it's forced people to look at I9s more diligently. So for those who are not so familiar with I9s, let me just back up. And you know, some of you all may have a lot of familiarity, some of you may have just a little familiarity. So I'll just remind everybody what the requirements are. So every company doesn't matter how big or how small you are, if you have employees that were hired after 1986, which is pretty much everyone these days, you have to have a form I-9 on that employee and you must keep it for the whole tenure of that employee. And there's even some rent- retention rules. You have to keep that I-9 even a little bit after that person is terminated. And if you fail to do this, it's this two page government form, you can be fined and there's both civil and criminal penalties. And so, again, that's why it's come up, you know, really important, especially for our private equity folks. Nobody wants to find themselves in a, uh, a criminal a situation, right? And those are, you know, just to not scare everybody here, those are really meant for very egregious situations. And so, by and large, we're talking about civil penalties here. But that's why it becomes so important. And so when we're doing diligence, you know, Kelsey, one of the things that we've worked on together is just coming up with those standard diligence questions. Do you keep I-9s? Are you uh, in a state that also requires you to participate in E-Verify?
1: Yeah, exactly. And certainly it's come up in, I think, every R R&W, and RWI deal I've had in the last couple years. It's been a set of questions on the call, and I think people would be, are, likely to be surprised by that, especially because they consider immigration issues to be kind of involved in select industries, but RWI doesn't see it this way and the regulations apply across the board.
3: That's right. That's right. And you know, some some deals or are, are maybe you kind of have to look at the deal. We see in, in food service, manufacturing, um, agriculture, it, in those deals, it's sort of front and center because if you learn that you have unauthorized workers, you could lose a uh, workforce. And if you don't have employees, of course, that's going to affect the uh, purchase price. And so these are often issues you need to know up front. And, you know, Kelsey, I, I think something we have both seen this year are people are not doing this on the back end of the deal. In other words, it's not just part of the standard diligence questions, but we have a lot of people now putting I-9 issues at the front of the deal because they want to know if there are any issues uh, before they get too far down the road.
1: Yeah, I think that's especially true in the industries you mentioned or in particular geographic areas where it's more likely to come up. But certainly, if you're not going to have a workforce there. That has to be one of the issues that you're considering from the jump on your deal, especially if people are a large part of your business. Right. And the general corporate
3: rule that I think it's really important for anybody in private equity who's doing deals to know this rule, but you sort of had two options on the table when you're looking at I-9s. So either you can keep the I-9s, and you inherit any liabilities. So, if they're bad or if they're untimely or you have problems with those I 9s, you might inherit those liabilities if you keep those I 9s. The other alternative is doing all new I 9s and you can cut off those old liabilities. But the only issue with that is uh, it's a very administratively burdensome. So, you know, let's say you have 500 employees. There's a really strict time frame to get those I-9s done after a deal closes. And you know if you have 500 employees, you may not have the bandwidth to get it done on time. And if you don't get them done on time, then you can be fined for that too. So you may even create more issues. There's a real calculus that goes into, you know, should you keep the I-9s or should you do all new I-9s? And Kelsey, you know, the question that we get a lot too is, okay, well, what about an asset purchase? I'm not, I'm only purchasing those assets, but that rule still applies because you still may be keeping the employees. And uh, so I think there's always a lot of confusion. I I get a lot of questions about that. Unfortunately, this is kind of one of those carve out immigration rules um, that if you keep those employees and keep the I-9s, you still inherit the liabilities even if it's an asset purchase deal, which sort of flies in the face of some of the corporate rules that we're normally accustomed to.
1: Yeah. That's definitely something that we hate to hear on the corporate side is that some liability could follow you through an asset sale because that's supposed to be our safe space, you know, but exactly right. <laughs> but I think that the timeline being so rigid in these other, you know, the liability following you along Um, really ups the ante for like making this a particularly serious issue to consider. I know that we've seen it come up in a lot of our deals in different contexts at different stages in the game, um, usually at the forefront, but it can be, unfortunately, just something that could be a deal killer, could be something that you just need to work around. But I think a lot of people, in addition to the asset sale issue, might think, well, can I just approach these selectively? If we have a workforce of like 500 people and there's only issues with a few people, can I just redo those selective I-9s? And Susan, what's the role around that?
3: Yeah, it's great, great question. We do get that question a lot, but unfortunately- it's a all or nothing scenario. So the rules are there, there's both Department of Homeland Security and there's also Department of Justice and Employee Rights Section rules. And what they tell us, the government rules tell us, is you have to either complete all new I-9s or you have to keep what you have. You could fix some of them in an audit context, but you can't do a new I-9 selectively. For employees, that would be against the rules.
1: Right. And I think we run into that too with the sellers on their side of things when they realize that there might be issues with their I 9s, going back and asking for new from selective people, which is its own ball of wax, right?
3: Yeah. You know, sometimes we've had people, we're on the buy side, for example, and we have sellers who start doing a lot of things with their I 9s. They might actually create more issues. So that's always something that we're looking out for, too. Have they suddenly created more issues than there were even before in an attempt to fix it because maybe they didn't fix it correctly, consistent with the rules? So we, we've we certainly seen that. Kelsey, something that you said, too, was a, you know, a deal killer. We have, and I think that's this sort of issue here, is we have seen I-9 issues kill a deal. And that can be very scary. But we've also, I think, developed a pretty good way to navigate these issues, too. So when we see that there are I-9 issues or compliance issues, we can kind of take a broad look at what what's really going on. Are these just technical paperwork issues? Those we can fix. You know, we can navigate that pretty easily. If we are seeing more issues in potentially unauthorized workers or just... You know, they don't have I 9s or they haven't complied at all. That's where it gets a little more serious. Or perhaps, you know, Kelsey, we've had issues like this before where we find out there's been past audits and six figure penalties from the government for non compliance. And how do you deal with that? So, where we've had those types of issues where, you know, we know that there was a government audit and they've been fined in the past, that's where alarm bells should be going off for everybody. Because if the government has already fined them for something, that means that there were issues. And so likely the government's going to come back at some point, maybe when you purchase the company or and they're going to be looking to see if you're in compliance. So that's one of those times you really want to make sure that you're paying attention to those issues. And I think one of the things we've done really successfully is indemnification provisions. Uh, We've done special indemnity especially if it's an RWI deal and that's going to be excluded from coverage, you definitely want that special indemnity. And I think you have to be sort of bold about asking for that. You don't want it to sour things, but at the same time, you got to protect yourself. So we've seen those special indemnities and there's a, you know, a lot of different ways to do those special indemnities. We have seen where we just put a special indemnity together. We don't ask for any money up front. We just say if there are issues in the future, prior to close, you know, we get fined for something. There's a government inquiry. Uh, You're going to indemnify us for that. And everybody sort of takes everybody at their word. But there's some times there's more serious situations like the one I talked about where there might be a six-figure penalty on the table with the government. And you really got to protect your client in that instance. And those are times where I usually... Look for some sort of holdback or put money in an escrow account because you know you, you need to hold back some money to cover those issues because it's a very high risk issue. And I, I told Kelsey, I would say this I think we probably have this disclaimer at the beginning of the podcast, but obviously, every situation is different, and so. You know, you'd always want to get good legal counsel on your specific situation. Nothing in this podcast should be construed as as legal advice to your specific situation. But just to give everyone an idea of what we see out there for those more serious situations, we do oftentimes do pullbacks and or escrow accounts.
2: Well, and the reason for that, I think, is um, super important to focus on, which is you don't want to have an indemnification provision that isn't even worth the paper that it's written on. So exactly. You end up in a situation where great, you know, you feel like you've taken all this comfort, you've got an agreement to indemnify, you've got an indemnification provision in your agreement and then something bad happens and you go to collect on it and there's nothing there. And so that is why you need to take a holistic approach to figure out in advance what is your exposure you know, what are you looking at here? If it's something small, maybe you could get comfortable with just a indemnification provision in the agreement. But if it is something that could potentially be more costly, that could really change the economics of the deal after the fact, then that may be a situation where you do want to ask for a specific holdback, agree on an amount, an amount certain, and set that aside so that you know that you have that protection there, that comfort there that will give you um, what you need in order to actually get the deal done.
1: Yeah and I think the approach on on that is can be driven by the issues that you're seeing you know I mean everything's going to be tailored to like if it's just paperwork issues we don't think that there's unauthorized workers involved it it seems like they just didn't complete the paperwork right oftentimes even in our rwi situation that might just be a conditional exclusion while we get things cleaned up the days following closing, and get the paperwork in, in place uh, properly in accordance with regulations. But if it's something more drastic, like an audit, or like there may be unauthorized workers, or it's not clear what's going on, those are the things where we might be looking at a holdback or an escrow. And of course, we're looking at Special indemnities are typically going to relate to the past practices because the new practices are on buyer's watch. So you still need to, if you're on the buy side, be working to clean up whatever you can within the timeline set by regulations. But this could protect you for purposes of if someone comes along, the government comes along and is looking back at the seller's past practices and wants to hold view accountable, but the kind of the two pronged approach is really fixing whatever the issues were in accordance with regulation. And if there's something from the past, having an adequate indemnity and a resource for that indemnity on the front end. And uh, Jody, I'm glad you jumped in because we're switching years into indemnity. I mean, what have you seen in the last year or so that you think is' worth mentioning as we go into this new year well there are a
2: couple of things that I wanted to highlight and I think the key one is you know you want to make sure the indemnification is worth the paper that it's written on so you want to make sure you can collect on it but there's also some nuances to actually drafting and negotiating the indemnification provision that courts have interpreted that people need to be mindful of to make sure that when you include an indemnification provision, in your agreement, you want to make sure that it's actually going to be enforceable in the event you need to exercise it later down the road. So um, some courts have looked at indemnification provisions that are too broad, and if they're drafted too broadly, it's possible that a court may find them unenforceable. Now, in most agreements, what we typically see is a provision, usually this is one of the throw-ins, but an important throw-in at the end, which is If a court were to find one or more of the provisions in the agreement to be unenforceable, that the other provisions in the agreement would still be in full force and effect. But this is one where you want to be careful that you've appropriately negotiated your indemnification provision so that it's not overly broad and thereby rendered unenforceable by a court. One example of this, um, and courts are split on this, and so you'll need to look at the particular state. Uh, law that governs the agreement that you're negotiating, but an indemnity clause that purports to relieve a party of liability based on their own negligence, some states have found that those provisions are void because they're against public policy. So, It's great to negotiate a broad provision, but you need to know that courts are going to scrutinize those. And if they are found to be too broad, they may not actually be enforceable and thereby will not be offering you the protection that you thought you once had. One other thing that we've seen is courts are going to look at a foreseeability standard when you're looking at an indemnification provision. And so, That's what you'd look at when you're looking at a traditional breach of contract scenario. And so you also want to make sure that the provision is broad enough. And so that includes things that are foreseeable. And then you may need to have some special or additional language included in there. If there is something that you want to have indemnification on that may not be foreseeable based on the facts and circumstances of your deal. So, think carefully about that. And, and I think that falls right into line with some of these I-9 issues that we've been discussing. You want to make sure that you know, maybe it's foreseeable that there could be paperwork issues. Maybe it's foreseeable if the government has already levied a fine against the company that you're buying. And so you want to think about those things. But if those have not happened, then you want to make sure that your indemnification provision would be found by a court or interpreted by a court to be reasonably foreseeable in what you're seeking to recover one last point just for everyone to to think about and hopefully you know nobody ever gets to a scenario where they've worked on a deal and somebody ends up going bankrupt but it is important to remember that a duty to indemnify may not survive bankruptcy again that's going to depend on facts and circumstances and the, the state in which you're in but remember that. And that may be another scenario where if you are concerned about the liquidity of the company that is offering the indemnification, then that may be a good situation where you actually ask them to do a monetary set aside so that you aren't trying to collect from somebody who's in a bankruptcy process.
1: That makes a lot of sense. And and Jody, maybe we can talk a little bit about this. And there's always a difference between an escrow, and a hold back. So holdback typically is the money is set aside in your own accounts or in a separate account that the buyer controls and serves as a resource for indemnity. So it's in your hands. Escrow means it's in a third party's hands and subject to an escrow agreement. So those are kind of your two alternatives. You can also have setoffs against if they if the company's doing well and there's earnouts or things like that, you can have set offs against those set off rights against other monies, like if there's a seller note or something like that. But that's all very deal and fact specific. One thing I wanted to revisit was you had talked about Susan had mentioned audits and if you're closing and there's an ongoing audit. That's a very fact-intensive question, whether or not you would still close, what the timing would look like, what the provisions would look like. But one thing you're going to want to consider are what are your rights around that audit and who is basically in control and in the driver's seat with respect to that um, situation and controlling communications with the government. And I think that's a... those facts can cut really both ways. And there's a lot to consider there. Susan, I don't know if you want to chat about that at all or Jody.
3: Kelsey, we've had that come up a few times and I I will tell you that's still just very, very SPAC specific. And I think it kind of depends on, is it a criminal investigation? That's very serious. And you might not even do the deal as a result of that until that's completely resolved. You know, we've had just regular old civil audits and, especially during COVID, it's not unusual for an audit to to go for a while. I've had examples where the audit started in 2020, but still hasn't wrapped up even in in 2022. And so they think it's a good deal. They don't want to wait any longer, but we don't know what the results of that civil audit are going to be. You know, in situations like that, that's where I want to look at those I-9s, kind of predict ahead of time uh, what kind of penalties are we looking at, if any. And then you can, you know, get everything together to kind of make a decision on whether you want to move forward. But, you know, if you're on seller side, you know, that might be a reason you can push the, the government to wrap up the audit. If you're on the buy side, you kind of want to be a little, at least a little bit in the mix. So you're not getting um, a surprise out of that. But at the same time, you have to be a little bit cautious because there are higher penalties, associated if if there's a prior enforcement history. But let's say that we're doing an asset purchase where we want to cut, kind of let liability stay with the old company. You know, in those situations, we sort of want to be careful to not insert ourselves in too much that you end up with, um, you know, a penalty history that follows you and you want to avoid that as much as you can. So those are some of the things I are typically thinking about, but it is very fact specific, as you mentioned. This actually leads me to one more
2: point that I wanted to make about being in control. One other thing that we've seen courts do is they usually strictly construe indemnification provisions against the person seeking indemnification. And so, again, a lot of times you'll see in agreements that provisions are not supposed to be construed one way or the other. But what we've seen is if you are the person that is prepared and suggested and Relying on an indemnification provision, the courts are going to construe that against you, and so think about that in your drafting process as well.
1: That's a really good point. Something good to know. I always wonder what you see on the back end related to some of these different like control provisions and things, and in the indemnity and how they how they tend to play out among the parties. Because there's definitely the way the contracts drafted, and then there's definitely how things. Happen in practice, but it's always interesting to have those takeaways. Is there any last thoughts? I know we're coming close on time for for either of you that you'd like to uh, tuck in here at the end.
2: Well, I think we've done a, a pretty good job of summarizing things that people should be thinking through um, as they're doing their deals, and then and I couldn't agree with you more. You know, when I get a contract that comes again uh, comes across my desk, that's going to be litigated. You can always tell what people intended, but that may not always be the way things shake out, whether it be, you know, different factual scenarios or how courts interpret agreements and how provisions are drafted against or construed against one or the other party. But I think there's no substitute to having good counsel that you trust, looking at these things in advance so that hopefully you avoid the phone call to the litigator that ends up having to fight this for your clients one way or another.
1: Yeah, I think that that makes makes total sense. I think that um, people often are not thinking about involving a litigator at this stage of the process, but as we have learned on our three episodes together, that is important um, because they have the horror stories, the tales of woe uh, from past contracts and. They can lead you along a path that will help you navigate all of those different issues. And then for Susan, I, it's it's just like, I feel bad for the sellers walking into a situation where they're not really sure what their I-9s say. They haven't dusted off that paperwork in a, in a long time. Maybe they've had the same workforce for a while and they're not totally in the know. And those are going to be pulled apart um, as part of the diligence process and definitely looked at and definitely brought up on a rep warranty insurance call. It'd be nice for them to be prepared going into that. And on the flip side, for the buyer to have the knowledge of how to navigate those issues should any arise related to that in diligence.
2: Some good ideas to set some New Year's resolutions for all, right. you, all you deal
1: lawyers out there. Yeah, deal lawyers and, and prospective sellers and prospective buyers, that this hasn't been something that you've thought about in your past deals as a buyer, or maybe you're coming up on a disposition or intended disposition in the future, the, all things to keep in mind. And we certainly have uh, the experts on hand here at McGuire Wood. So thank you, Jody and Susan, for joining us today. It's always a treat to talk to you every year. It's one of my favorite favorite episodes each year. So uh, thanks for taking the time today. really appreciate it. Thanks for having us.
0: Thank you for joining us at the table for this episode of Deal Us In. If you have a recommendation for an inspiring interviewee, a question you'd like us to ask, or a topic you would like to hear covered, or if you'd like to tell us about women-focused initiatives in the field, please email us at wpef at We look forward to hearing from you. This podcast was recorded and is being made available by McGuire Woods for informational purposes only. By accessing this podcast, you acknowledge that McGuire Woods makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in the podcast. The views, information, or opinions expressed during this podcast series are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily reflect those of McGuire Woods. This podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice from a licensed professional attorney in your state and should not be construed as an offer to make or consider any investment or course of action.